Now we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 3, please, for our reading this morning, Exodus chapter 3. And we'll take time to read the whole chapter together. Exodus 3, and we read in verse 1, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I am come down, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I, that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee. And this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob, appear unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites, And the Jebusites unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to my voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met us. And now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. 
and you shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. And we thank the Lord again for his precious word to us. In a world that really has very little time for Scripture, the story of Moses is one that many people still remember. He was the one who led the children of Israel out of Egypt, received the Ten Commandments. He communicated the law. It was Moses who fashioned the bronze serpent and held it up for the people to be saved. He appeared in the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark 9. In Hebrews 11, he was commended for choosing the reproach of Christ rather than the riches of Egypt. Moses is a real hero of the faith. And yet when we encounter Moses in Exodus 3, he doesn't really give off hero vibes. The man in his late 70s, stuck in the back end of nowhere, looking after sheep. He'd had the riches of Egypt, but not now. After God had preserved him in Exodus 2, Moses was brought up as Pharaoh's grandson, but he knew full well he didn't belong in there. When he was being blessed in the palace, his Hebrew countrymen were being treated as slaves. Promises that had been made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob about a land that they would call their own. A land flowing with milk and honey seemed far-fetched at best. Yet faithful Israelite parents still taught their children about the covenant. Told them of a covenant-keeping God who wouldn't leave his people in affliction a God of righteousness who wouldn't ignore the brutality of the Egyptians. Moses' mother had clearly taught him the truth about his own people, the truth about his God. And after 40 years in Egypt, the man Moses finally takes his stand against oppression. But sadly, he goes about it the wrong way. He kills an Egyptian, murders him. Thought no one had seen him, but soon enough, He had to flee. Moses didn't arrive in the wilderness a hero. He arrived a fugitive. And almost 40 years later, he's in exactly the same place. Removed from the fight. Removed from the problems. As far from active service for the Lord as he could possibly be. And the Lord had to perform a miracle to get his attention. I think that begs the question this morning to all of us. How's your service? Are you active in the church? Are you engaged among the unsaved? Are you reaching the lost? Are you walking as light in the darkness? Are you raising the next generation in the ways of God? How's your service? Do we actively seek to serve the Lord or are we hiding in the backside of the desert hoping he doesn't perform some miracle to get our attention? Forty years he was there. Forty years of nothing. And when the Lord calls him, Moses raises argument after argument for why he's not the guy. I'm not saying we wouldn't all do it. I think we probably would. But when the Lord decides who he's using for service, that's who he's going to use. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we accepted that instead of trying to fight him on it? But the wonderful thing that strikes me when you think of the story of Moses and 
Daniel touched on this a few weeks ago in the midweek. The Lord is gracious. He's gentle. He's patient. And in this conversation spanning these two chapters, three and four, the Lord makes four great declarations. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Four declarations, each time graciously reminding his reluctant servant that he's communing with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Each time emphasizing his credentials to call him. Each time highlighting Moses' obligation to serve and each time reinforcing the covenant that he's made with his people. Four marvelous lessons in the character of God. The covenant God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Firstly, out of the burning bush, God teaches that the God of the covenant is a God of holiness. Verse 2 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but was not consumed. The angel of the Lord appeared as fire in the midst of a bush. It's probably not that unusual a sight in the desert. The heat would have meant that oily-based plants could have just spontaneously combusted, but they'd have then burnt out in seconds. Whereas this bush burnt, but never burnt out. It wasn't consumed. Now, this wasn't an illusion. This wasn't a figment of his imagination. This wasn't the Lord making a bush appear to be on fire. This was fire. A destructive force of nature, an intense burst of heat and light. And yet somehow it was under control. It was restrained. It was destructive, yet somehow reserved. It was consuming, yet somehow controlled. And folks, that's the holiness of God. God's perfect holiness demands justice against all who are not holy. It demands judgment. God's holiness should be all-consuming. It should leave nothing in its wake and destroy everything that is unholy. But it doesn't. The children of Egypt, the children of Israel in Egypt 400 years must have felt like they were under the judgment of God. Moses, I'm sure, must have felt like he was under the judgment of God, forced to leave his people, forced to tend sheep in the wilderness. But he wasn't under God's judgment. He was under mercy. When Egypt tried to cross the Red Sea in Exodus 14, they fell under the judgment of God. They were utterly destroyed, but not Moses, not Israel. To them, the holiness of God was controlled. Consuming, yet controlled. It's also pleading, yet prohibited. Pleading, yet prohibited. The Lord calls Moses from the bush, and in verse 4, he says, here am I. He's been invited to come, to turn aside and see this wonderful sight. But he couldn't come as he was. This was holy ground. It was the presence of God. And yes, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was pleading with him. But he couldn't come as he was. He had to take the shoes off his feet. There had to be a reverence, a humility, an acceptance 
that he had no right to be there. An understanding that he had to follow God's way to be accepted. An awareness of his unworthiness before a holy God. Is that not how each of us came to know the Lord? The God of heaven pleaded, invited us to turn from our sin and enter his presence, but we couldn't come in our filth. We couldn't enter as we were. We had to come by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We needed to acknowledge our sin and receive the salvation of Jesus through the cross. Only then could we enter into the presence of God. Consuming yet controlled, pleading yet prohibited, the holiness of God is also intimate yet intimidating. In his first covenant declaration in verse 6, the Lord begins, I am the God of thy father. Not fathers. I am the God of thy father. In Hebrews 11, we're told it was through faith that Moses' parents defied the king's order and preserved the life of their son. And the Lord introduces himself as the God of Moses' father. He's saying, I was there. I was the one who preserved you, the one who watched over you in the river, the one who brought you into this wilderness, the one who gave you a family, gave you a job. And now I am the one calling you to serve me in Egypt. You see, it wasn't fate that brought Moses to the bush. It was God. It wasn't a random occurrence. It was a deeply personal, intentional, and intimate encounter with God. With a God who knew everything about him. Believer, this morning, when you come into the presence of God, whether in prayer, through the word, or joining together with other believers like we are this morning, you enter a deep and personal communion with one who knows everything about you, knows you intimately, knows your hopes, your fears, your joy. Your despair. He knows them all. But look at the impact it had on him. End of verse 6. And Moses hid his face. For he was afraid. To look upon God. He was afraid. I know we've got a few. Golfers in here this morning. One of the most challenging experiences. For any amateur golfer. Is when you're out in the course and you're asked to play through. In other words, you're invited to overtake another group that's playing slower than you on the course. And that's okay until you realize that they then are all going to watch you taking your next shot. And suddenly everything you know about golf goes out the window. You forget how to hold the club. You forget how to stand. You forget how to hit the ball. You forget what direction you're going. Now imagine one of those players was Rory McIlroy. You would feel immensely inadequate. Trying to take your shot in the presence of someone so much greater. It's a small idea of the reality of what it is to come into the presence of God. We cannot fail to be conscious of our own sin. We're standing on holy ground. Us, sinful, sorry creatures in the sight of Almighty God. And yet because of Christ, 
we can stand in his presence. Yes, we feel inadequate and we should feel inadequate, but no longer do we have to fear because Jesus has enabled us to stand. The God of the covenant is a God of holiness. Secondly, the God of the covenant is a God of the present. He's God of the present. Verse 14, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. Verse 15, and thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, my memorial unto all generations. Who will I say hath sent me? How will they know that I am come in the authority of God? The Lord replies, tell them the I am hath sent you. The I am. This is the ultimate description of God. I am. I am outside of time. I am unaffected by circumstances. I am independent of any other creature. I am eternally existent, eternally present, eternally consistent. I am that I am. No matter when, no matter where, no matter what, he's there. He's the God of the present. Present in suffering. Verse 7. I have surely seen the affliction of my people, heard their cry by reason of the taskmasters. I didn't need someone to tell me. I didn't get it third hand. I was there. I have seen the affliction. I have heard their cry because I was present present in suffering believe this morning has he been present in yours maybe you didn't see him but he was there maybe you've cried and cried thinking no one was listening but he was there These people cried for deliverance, desperate for their suffering to end. Does that sound familiar? And yet the Lord, rather than break cover, rather than let his presence be known to a suffering people in that moment, instead the Lord inexplicably sets fire to a bush in the wilderness. That was his answer. We always say hindsight's a wonderful thing. I remember back in 2016 uh, in the European Championships in football, Northern Ireland had qualified for the first tournament in 30 years. Second game, Ian will remember this very well, second game, 1-0 up against Ukraine, really needing the points to get through. Seconds to play, and Josh McGinnis gets the ball. Instead of heading for the corner like you're supposed to when you're 1-0 up with seconds to play, he starts taking players on. And I remember screaming at the TV and saying, don't try and be a hero. Don't do it. Don't give it away. Of course, he gets to the byline, whips the ball in, and we eventually score and win 2-0. He'd absolutely done the right thing in hindsight. But at the time, he was doing what seemed absolutely mad. 
Sometimes we look at a situation and we decide how that situation should play out. We've got it all figured out. This will happen, then this will happen, then that will happen, and it will all fall into place. And we do that with the Lord. We think we know what the Lord should do next. But we don't see what he sees. He sees the end from the beginning. And one thing we can be absolutely certain of is that he's present all the way through. He doesn't zoom in at the area that we think he's going to. He's present all the way through. Present in our suffering. That doesn't mean he'll always do what we think. He says, I know their sorrows. I've seen their affliction. I know. A child of God, he knows what you're going through right now. Your intimate, ever-present father knows and he's present he's there in your suffering he's present too in our joy verse 8 says I will come down to deliver them and I will bring them onto a land flowing with milk and honey there will be joy and in your joy I will be present because I will bring you there the Lord will bring his people into blessing. And depending on your circumstances, that might seem like a a very distant thought to you right now. How can the Lord bring blessing in this? How can he possibly bring joy from these circumstances? But remember, he isn't the God of the bad times or the God of the good times. He isn't the God within church or the God within Israel. He's the God of the present. He's present in all of those. His desire to bless his people isn't affected by their circumstances, isn't enhanced by past blessings or subdued by past failures. That's why there's still hope for Israel today. Because the God of the covenant is the God of the present. In every place, in every situation, he is there present, working for the benefit of his people. In every moment, at every step, he wants to bring us into joy with him. Folks, we don't serve an absent God. God preoccupied with bigger issues. We serve one who is eternally present in ours. A God who hears the cry of an abused nation while also intimately communing with a farmer in the desert. That's our God. Present in our suffering, present in our joy, and he's present among our enemies. He's present among our enemies. Won't have escaped your notice that it's getting a lot harder to live as a Christian. Certainly when we look at what our young people are facing. Feels like the enemies are growing, and I do say that cautiously because we really don't have it too bad here. But opposition is rising. And the Lord asks that we live as light in a dark world. Asks all of us. Asks that we stand as pillars of righteousness and stand firm in the defense. Stand firm in the defense of his precious name 
and his redeemed people. And you might say, yeah, but who am I to take a stand? Who am I to take a stand? I'm not a speaker. I don't know scripture like other people do. I couldn't deal with all those arguments that are going to come back if I take a stand. Who am I? It's exactly what Moses said. Verse 11, who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring forth the children of Israel. And the Lord replies, but I will be with thee. The God of the covenant will be present with you among your enemies. I have heard their cry and them come down. Present when you get grief and work. Present when your children have to navigate gender issues in school. Present when your street runs a pride event. Present when the church comes under threat on same-sex marriage, because that'll come. But I am the God of the present. Our God isn't removed from the actions of the evil one. He's not ignorant of the agendas being pushed in our schools or the subtle legislative changes that encourage godless behavior. He's present. He sees it. He feels it. And while he doesn't promise to make it better, he has promised to be with us as we face it. The God of the covenant is a God of the present. Thirdly, the God of the covenant is a God of deliverance. This is from verse 16 where God tells Moses to gather the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt, and I will bring you up out of the affliction. He's the God of deliverance. And what did that mean to Israel? It meant he was going to bring them to a new place. End of verse 17, a land flowing with milk and honey. Secondly, he'd give them a new purpose. Verse 18, now let us go that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. A new purpose. No longer slaves in Egypt, but servants of the Most High God. They'd be brought into a land, given a purpose, and thirdly, blessed with provision. Verse 21. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go out empty. God would cause the Egyptians to give them provision for the journey. In Egypt, they'd nothing. Yet the God of deliverance would send them out full. Blessed with provision, given a purpose, and brought to a new place. Is that not the reality for the believer? We have a God who promises to bring us to a new place, John 14, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. A new place, a new purpose. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. We have a duty to serve the God of deliverance. We've been given a purpose. And blessed with abundant provision, the Lord says in Matthew 6, Behold the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? The God of the covenant cares what you had for breakfast. He knows what you think of your job. He understands the things you'd like to get done around the house. God isn't just present when we come to church or open our Bibles. 
He's eternally present in every decision we have to make. Present in the uneventful as he's present in the drama. Present to provide the counsel we seek, the comfort we crave, and the correction we need. The God of the covenant provides for his people. The God of the covenant is a God of holiness, a God of the present, and a God of deliverance. But finally, in chapter 4, and we'll do this quickly, we see the God of the covenant is a God of authority. He's a God of authority. In verse 1, Moses says, what if they don't believe me? So the Lord shows them two incredible miracles that they might know that the God of their fathers, verse 5, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob had appeared to Moses. He tells them to throw down his rod and it became a serpent. And when he lifted it up, it turned back into a rod. What was all that about? Why did he show him this particular miracle? Well, Israel knew their history. Adam, Eve, the Garden of Eden, the fall, the commandment not to eat of the tree, the serpent who deceived them. The serpent represented evil. Satan's influence in the world and the God of authority was saying, I have control, absolute authority over evil. There is nothing to fear. The Lord said, furthermore, slip your hand into your bosom. And when he took it out, it was covered with leprosy. He put it back in and it was gone. Leprosy was a horrible disease, effectively a living death sentence on anyone who got it. Immediate separation from civilization, no remedy, no cure. Just progressive decay until death. The God of authority had control over leprosy, control over death. No one and nothing could touch his people unless he allowed it. And it's the same for us today. We haven't been guaranteed an easy ride, far from it. But the Lord won't let a single thing touch us unless it's in his will. Control over evil, control over death, and lastly, He has total control over our lives. Moses continues his arguments. Verse 10. I'm not eloquent. I can't speak. The Lord responds, I'll teach you what to say. Argues again in verse 14. God sends his brother to support him. In verse 18, he tells his boss, his wife's father, all that happened. And his father-in-law says, go in peace. It's fine. Every single obstacle that Moses put up, the Lord just brushes aside. Even when he met the elders of Israel, despite his fears, his doubts, his inadequacies, verse 31 tells us that the people believed. And when they heard the Lord had visited Israel and looked upon their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. I want to ask you this morning, What's holding you back from serving? What obstacles are you putting up before the Lord? Is it unworthiness? Believing that you've nothing to offer? In the presence of a holy God, none of us are worthy. None of us. 
not people in a position within a church, not people who are, are actively serving, not people that we would revere. None of us are worthy. But in the righteousness of Christ, we are all accepted. And on that basis, God calls us to serve. Maybe it's the unknown fear of what you'll encounter. But remember, we serve the God of the present. There are no unknowns to God. If he calls, he equips. If he calls, he prepares. And he prepares you for the exact things that you're going to face. Perhaps you fear you'll be unwelcome. Opposition on your doorstep, persecution within your family, maybe even grumblings within the church. And you think it's just not worth it. Well, can I assure you that when you serve the God of the covenant, you're serving the King of Kings. It's more than worth it. Or maybe you feel unqualified. I haven't done any training. Maybe a fairly new Christian. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too nervous. I'm not eloquent enough. But you're forgetting about the God of authority. The God who can put words in your mouth. The God who can open the way for you to go. The God who can prepare the conversations before you even have them. All he's asking is that you step out in faith. The God of the covenant is calling you to serve. You don't need to be worthy because he is. You don't need to know everything because he does. You don't have to be strong because he delivers. And quite frankly, you don't even have to think you're any good at it. Because when he calls, he equips. By faith, Moses went. That's what Hebrews tells us. 80-year-old Moses. He had to take some convincing, but he went. And maybe this morning God wants you to go too. What is the Lord asking you to do? And what obstacles are you putting up in his path? We're going to sing together 607 in the books. It's a hymn that really reminds us of what we have in Christ and what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to surrender self, to surrender our own wills and ambitions and desires for him. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. We'll sing the first and the fourth, please, just the two verses, one and four, and stand and to sing, please.